This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. This is the sidebar for the week of August 11th, 2017. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. Most of North Korea's exports do go uh, to China. Most of the goods that are being affected uh, by these new sanctions go to China. And uh, so that uh, it really will rely on China acting now to force its firms to comply. Earlier this month, the 15-member UN Security Council voted unanimously to impose strict new sanctions on North Korea in response to that country's ongoing testing of its nuclear weapons program. This week, we spoke to Robert Kahn. He is a senior fellow for international economics at the Council on Foreign Relations. We talked with him about these sanctions, how they're enforced, and why China is critical in determining the effectiveness of any new sanctions against Pyongyang. Robert Kahn, thank you very much for being with us here in our C-SPAN radio studios. And let me begin with the issue of these sanctions. They are now being implemented by 15 members of the United Nations, a unanimous decision this past week. How are they enforced? Well, first of all, thank you for letting me join you today. Uh, the UN, as you said, did decide last week uh, by a unanimous vote uh, to basically restrict the ability of North Korea to export a range of products, uh, pr most importantly coal, but an iron ore, uh, some seafood, a variety of commodities that provide an important uh, flow of resources to the North Korean government. There are a lot of sanctions already in place, uh, both put on by the United States and also through the UN in a number of resolutions that date back more than a decade. Uh, but those resolutions created certain uh, escape valves, if you if you will, kind of uh, uh, outlets for North Korea to continue to export for humanitarian purposes or, in a sense, non-governmental needs. And over time, those uh, loopholes or uh, escape valves have gotten wider and wider. The amount of goods that flew th flowed through those uh, larger and larger to the point where they now export about $3 billion a year. What this resolution does is to basically tighten those uh, exemptions and to try and make the, the restrictions that are in place far more extensive. There are some other things it does that are new in terms of forced uh, human labor uh, and the like, but the most important part is to, is to try and squeeze down the export revenue of the North Korean government. Now, will it work? Ultimately, a UN resolution is a statement by all the members of the Security Council to, to individually... Uh, enact that. And it, so it depends on the goodwill and the enforcement of all those countries. And most importantly, it's China. Most of North Korea's exports do go uh, to China. Most of the goods that are being affected uh, by these new sanctions go to China. And uh, so that 
uh, it really will rely on China acting now to force its firms to comply. And that is, of course, the, the key question that we have right now going forward in terms of will these new sanctions work or make any material different, difference at a time of uh, rapidly escalating tensions uh, between the U.S. and North Korea. And I want to follow up on that point in just a moment with regard to China, but we heard from the U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley who said they were the toughest sanctions in a generation. Is that true? Uh, you know, it's. I, I wouldn't necessarily have said that. I think there have been other measures taken uh, against North Korea in the past that were very important. Uh, about a decade ago, there were some sanctions basically trying to cut them off from the financial system by sanctioning a bank that they worked with. They were That was very powerful at the time. Uh, but in, in the current environment, this is a significant new sanction. It is a, a policy that could, if with the support of the Chinese government, make an, make a difference. And in that regard, uh, they do. The government, the administration, does deserve credit for for reaching a consensus uh, at the at the UN for these measures. Who are North Korea's friends? You mentioned China, mm. but who else does it do business with? They don't actually have a lot of friends right now. They do business primarily uh, with China. That's the uh, major. And some other countries that are probably peripheral to the global financial system. Uh, but even China right now has a very strained relationship with North Korea. I, I don't necessarily call them a friend. I think, though, that it's fair to say that while they're pretty frustrated with the behavior of the North Korean government, they're also uh, extraordinarily concerned that the collapse of that, that government could lead to chaos uh, at its border, uh, potentially reunification with South Korea, and a range of social, political, and economic pressures that they don't want to have to deal with at this time. Why? Why is China so concerned about the possibility, the potential, or even the talk of a united Korean nation? I think, importantly, uh, it is the, the concern that a unified government, uh, effectively uh, a South Korean government, uh, closely aligned with the United States, would provide uh, uh, s uh, challenges to China at a time when it is trying to, in a sense, expand its uh, presence in international affairs, play a greater role uh, in, in the region and in the world. Uh, they're also, I'm sure, worried about a humanitarian crisis. Uh, uh, refugees streaming across the border and the costs associated with that as well. But I think first and foremost, they don't want a government opposed to their interests uh, on their border. So let's go back to the issue of these sanctions and China's role as it tries to walk that very mm -hmm. fine line between the UN, the US, and yeah. its business relationship with North Korea. How does the US ensure that China is agreeing to its end of the bargain? Well, it's hard because uh, economic and financial relations uh, that North Korea has with the world are not always easy to observe. But we do uh, have intelligence on that trade. And over time, I th we will be able to monitor whether trade is continuing to flow and whether the revenue is 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 coming into the North Korean government coffers. How long does that take? It, there is a lag, but I think in the current environment, we should know reasonably quickly uh, for the major products like coal in particular.
the central planet being sanctioned. And is it any different when one country is imposing sanctions yeah. on another versus a group of countries? Well, this is really, uh, Steve, a, a fascinating question. And it, it's, in a way, broader than simply the North Korean story. Uh, if, I, if I can step back a little bit and sure. put it in the broader con- a broader context. Sanctions are uh, a a long-lived feature of international economic policy. Countries have been pursuing different kinds of trade and sanctions or financial sanctions for hundreds of years. So there's nothing in some sense new about that. And, And prior to the turn of the century, there was broadly a consensus uh, that sanctions were difficult to put in in a way that would be effective, uh, that often they were evaded, uh, that that countries could work around them in, in complicated ways. And so generally speaking, there was a, a, a view that it, in, in cases where it would work, it needed to be multilateral. In other words, you had to have a broad consensus of countries agreeing to put the sanction on so it wouldn't be e- easy for the sanctioned country to go trade with others. Uh, they needed to maybe be targeted to specific purposes. And there had to be a clear objective that you were trying to achieve in terms of what you wanted uh, the country to do. So you could create both the space for the country to, for a negotiation to follow and then maybe also maybe an escape route for that country in terms of what they could do to get those sanctions relieved. And that was basically or the well-understood view on sanctions going into, as I say, really into uh, uh, the turn of the century. After 9-11... There was really a rethink of how, particularly in the United States, how we should do sanctions. Some of that was legal in terms of some of the legislation that was passed after 9-11 to allow us to go after uh, terrorists, in particular terrorist financing. But more broadly, there was a a view that evolved that, that we needed to think more about the financial links and the financial ties that often were associated with the trade. So maybe it wasn't the trade per se, but the financing of it, which was the real vulnerability of the sanction. And so policy in the U.S., but even globally, changed quite a bit to focus more on financial sanctions as a leading edge of policy. Uh, And when you focus on financial transactions, uh, what's important to keep in mind is that the financial system is dominated by U.S. firms, and indeed, uh, the U.S. is at the center of it. And the way I often analogize it to, for those of us of a certain age, you may remember the, the, the a string of Christmas lights that we used to always hang at the, uh, in the holiday season. And the problem would always be that if one bulb burned out, uh, the whole chain would go out. And it would take often a long time to figure out which was the bulb that was the problem. I think some people still have those. <laughs> some people may still have them, although it seems uh, we are probably dating ourselves. You know, in a string of financial transactions... Uh, if you can block any one link in that chain, you sometimes have the capacity to make the whole chain fail to operate. And indeed, it is hardly any financial transaction these days that doesn't at some point either run through the United States or at least affect an institution that is either U.S. or so deeply involved in U.S. financial markets that they are within the reach of the sanctions and would not want to run afoul of U.S. policymakers by participating in that. And so there's a new power to these financial sanctions, or at least even if they're trade sanctions linked to the finance, to to disrupt, for the the United States, to disrupt those uh, flows by basically saying, if you're participating in our system, 
you're uh, not uh, able to, part to, to do this. And now that raises some questions. Uh, it sometimes can lead to, to the U.S. imposing sanctions uh, outside its borders or on countries that maybe didn't sign on. This sense of extraterritoriality is uh, always an issue of concern. That's why it's still important to try and build multilateral consensus for these sanctions. Uh, but it does mean we can reach out. And to just use an example that's uh, a bit unusual, if you remember a few years ago, uh, the FIFA soccer scandal, uh, it, was U it was a U.S. set of U.S. sanctions that basically uh, brought that down, even though many of the people receiving bribes were non-Americans. Uh, and they occur, and these bribes took place outside the U.S. It was the U.S. financial system was involved. Now, bringing that back to the this North Korean case and why that's relevant, even though we're now talking about a sanction that will be on coal, ultimately, the real power to this is the threat that to sanction the institutions that deal with North Korea if they try and evade these sanctions. And if those institutions are outside of North Korea. We have the capacity to sanction them uh, for participating. These are sometimes called secondary sanctions. And well, to, to that point in terms yeah. of enforcement yeah. is you try to, to, to follow the money, to connect yeah. the dots, yeah. to look at the trail in today's digital age. Is that easy or is it more complicated? It's very complicated. Uh, fi uh, financial flows uh, can often be done in, uh, in ways which make the ultimate ownership hard to discern. But we also have uh, developed, really over the last 15 years, extraordinarily sophisticated tools. And we have a, a, a strong, within our, the U.S. government, particularly the U.S. Treasury, we have this great team of, of technical career uh, civil servants who basically do this and know how to do it. Uh, and, and indeed, we have we, – this is in a sense – these are these kind of issues of how you track the financial flows are at the core of all our current sanctions debates in North Korea, uh, on Russia, and also uh, Venezuela, which are the ones that are in the news right now. And are the sanctions any different with regard to North Korea than, as you point out, with Russia right now and Vladimir Putin? Well, they are different in a manner of degree, that if you think about sanctions for, say, a country like North Korea or Iran uh, in the past, uh, these were sanctions for countries that were not well integrated into global financial markets. And so it is a little bit harder. You have to really uh, go after the, the, the institutions that are dealing with them. Uh, it, is, it is different in, in degree than, for example, what we saw in Russia at, with the Ukraine conflict, where Russia was much more comprehensively involved in uh, global financial markets and in energy markets. And so the sanctions had broader uh, costs in the Russian economy, but also broader spillback to the U.S. economy. Fundamentally, though, it's, it's similar techniques. And the way this will play out in North Korea will be, first and foremost, do the Chinese uh, actually... Uh, take seriously these new sanctions and ensure their firms don't trade with the North Koreans. And if there is evasion, if these sanctions are not observed, would we be willing then to produce secondary sanctions on Chinese financial institutions and Chinese trading institutions uh, for, part, for for evading these, these sanctions? And if we do that, they'll, in a sense, have, be in many ways similar to what we, we saw in, in Russia. Robert Kahn, let's talk about you, your involvement mm -hmm. with the Council on Foreign Relations. You've worked for a number of investment groups and also the IMF. So 
how did you become such an expert in this area? What is your background? Well, it's uh, it's it's an amateur who became fascinated in the issue. To be to be honest, uh, when I first came to the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, it was you know I was exposed to an extraordinary set of issues that I hadn't thought about in my more traditional economic uh, positions, and so I started to th- try and think about what were the the issues that animated my colleagues at the Council of Foreign Relations, and could I. Uh, the great political debates, and could I bring good economics to bear uh, on those questions in a way that helped make uh, policy uh, more relevant or better informed? And I and and that would be that could be true whether you'd be talking about European political integration and Brexit. Uh, it might be true whether you'd be talking about. Uh, uh, regional integration in in Asia, but certainly, as you can imagine, it, 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 sanctions were an issue where uh, it, they had become central to U.S. foreign policy, increasingly so, and I felt that there were important economic issues and principles uh, to, to be brought to bear. If I can just sort of make one other historical point on that, uh, y- you know, it, as I said earlier, sanctions have been with us for a long time and an important uh, element of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, there's a f- I remember a famous quote, I think, from Bill Clinton, who complained that they about how common uh, sanctions were. It was kind of the uh, risk in his con- uh, that it be too common, they were going to be overused. And if anything, certainly since 9-11, we've seen an intensification of interest. I'm going to be the two-handed economist with you, if I can. Uh, on the one hand, for the the cases that we're talking about today, that we're thinking about today, whether it's North Korea or, or the the Russian legislation that was recently passed, or Venezuela, I'm actually supportive of the sanctions and, uh, that are being put in place, and I think the the, the cost benefits, uh, and from an economic perspective of them, can be pretty powerful, and and important in trying to achieve foreign policy objectives. As an economist, I would also argue that there are longer-term costs from a heavy use uh, on san- of sanctions, and we do have to keep in mind those costs. I mean, there is a risk that if sanctions become seen as the easy option, that over time we might see uh, that there is uh, a real damage being done to the global marketplace uh, and people's confidence in it and willingness to invest and participate and play by those rules of the game. And that could affect the, uh, the role of the dollar. It could affect U.S. prosperity more generally. Uh, and so I do think we, these, are, these are issues we need to be careful about. And so I was animated and, and energized by the, the interest in trying to, try, to bring some good economics to bear to these questions, even recognizing that ultimately what drives our decision-making is really geopolitics. So let's talk about the short term, because clearly these sanctions in place uh, with at least one objective to get North Korea at the bargaining Mm -hmm. table to avert what everyone admits would be a nuclear catastrophe if there is a strike by North Korea and the U.S. and its allies respond. So historically, do sanctions work in Mm -hmm. terms of bringing players to the table? So that's a great question. Um, and, and in some ways, uh, almost impossible to answer. So do sanctions work? So, of course, what do we mean by work? Uh, there is a famous study um, that went out and looked at over, I think it was about 70 years, uh, sanctions. And they, uh, sa- they 
confronted this question and decided to say, what was the stated policy objective? Uh, so, for example, our stated our, when we first put sanctions uh, on Russia a few years ago, the stated policy agenda was to reverse the annexation of Crimea. Did the sanctions work in that regard? Up till now, no, and I think no one would anticipate they would. That study found that over a long arc of history, uh, sanctions worked about a third of the time, uh, mostly when they were multilaterally done. Uh, uh, but, you know, one third just means a lot of the times they don't. Now, the, the challenge to this result, in part, is to say, well, work is a complicated notion because there's a lot of reasons why we do sanctions. Sometimes it can be very simply, here's a stated objective here. We want North Korea to cease the development of its nuclear program. And by that objective, uh, a decade of sanctions on North Korea have not worked. But uh, there can sometimes be other reasons, maybe not stated, or maybe to, you know, broadly discussed, uh, to punish a country that's behaving badly, uh, to bring a country to the negotiating table. I think you could argue, for example, sanctions on Iran in the last decade were actually effective in bringing them to the table for the deal that, that was ultimately agreed, uh, to send a signal to others that certain behaviors can't be tolerated. And so then the question of do they work becomes that more complicated uh, assessment of uh, uh, of, the, of what we were able to accomplish. Now, to the specific question you're asking on North Korea, obviously, up till now, sanctions haven't uh, uh, achieved what we wanted to. It is also probably, it is also certainly the case that the kind of sanctions we're talking about now, cutting off exports to reduce the revenue the government has to meet key social needs and also to finance its nuclear program. That's going to take some time to be felt. And, uh, you know, right now the politics are moving at warp speed, in part driven by the comments of the president and then the, the comments by the North Korean government in response. And so certainly there, we're in an environment now where there is a bit of a disconnect, if you will, between what I, the, the economic timeline or the sanctions effectiveness timeline, which could, even if you think these sanctions are going to work powerfully, could take months maybe even a couple of years, to really be powerfully felt, and the political necessity to get action now. And so, uh, you know, I, that's why I think if, if this is going to work, it's probably going to be, as I think some of the administration uh, spokesmen have hinted at, if, if it changes Chinese behavior, because that can be kind of not only a force multiplier in some sense, it can, be, it can accelerate dramatically the effectiveness of these sanctions in terms of changing the behavior of the, of the North Korean government. And so finally, with sanctions in place, as you say, for a decade and now accelerated because mm -hmm. of the U.N., what is life like inside North Korea? How does the country survive? How do they feed its people, yeah. its commerce, its day-to-day -day living? Well, I think for the vast majority of North Koreans, uh, it's a very difficult life. Uh, there, it's tremendously austere. Uh, and this government has imposed... a. Um, Compared to uh, the kind of lifestyle people have in the South, an extraordinarily low quality of life. Now, the elites live quite well uh, and all live better than they would if these export, if this loophole that allowed billions of dollars of exports still to be done uh, hadn't been in place. But there's no doubt that, uh, that the Korean people have paid a huge cost for uh, the policies that have generated these sanctions. From your standpoint, 
how is this all going to end? Any thoughts? It's very hard to predict in the current environment. Um, I think the concern of my colleagues and I is that if anything over the next several weeks, uh, tensions will escalate, not diminish. Uh, I think we, the, I mean, I don't feel at this point, um, I'm no expert on the, the broader political. I mean, my personal view is that I don't think we're at the, uh, the brink of war. Uh, I hope we're not. And so I, I, I'm not convinced by some of the comparisons people made, for example, to the Cuban Missile Crisis and some other times in the past where we've been we, we've been really at the cl edge of it. But certainly we're in a period now where you worry that things could happen by accident, bad things could happen by accident. And so, you know, I very, very much hope that uh, diplomacy uh, is uh, going to be effective and there's a route forward that's found on it. And in that sense, this is uh, in many ways where sanctions could play a very important role, that the, the threat of them, the imposition of what we've had now, the threat of more, but also the willingness to take those sanctions away if behavior improves can be both a powerful set of carrots and sticks for uh, a better a resolution of the conflict. Which is why we are thankful for your explanation. Robert Kahn, who is with the Council on Foreign Relations here in our Washington, D.C. studios, we appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on. You've been listening to C-SPAN's The Sidebar. Be sure to follow C-SPAN and C-SPAN Radio on Twitter. And let us know what you'd like to hear about in future episodes by using the hashtag C-SPAN Sidebar. If you like the program, please like, rate, and review us wherever you listen to podcasts. By the way, every C-SPAN podcast is available on the free C-SPAN Radio app for Apple and Android devices, as well as Google Play Music, TuneIn, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening.